morning back 84 years today, September, uh, September, October the 30th, 1938. In America, all around America, people are turning on their radios, expecting to hear some good old-fashioned music, I guess, but what they actually hear is a news report. Various news reports coming from all over the country, the aliens have landed. Not only have the aliens have landed, but they're attacking major cities. Panic ensues everywhere. Uh, telephone switchboards are uh, clogged up with people calling newspapers, police, their relatives. Um, the roads are packed, people are packing their bags, they're getting out of cities as quickly as they can. Fear is everywhere. It may not surprise you to know that there were in fact no aliens landed 84 years ago. It was, it turned out to be the most famous drama of all time on the radio. It was H.G. Wells' um, War of the Worlds. But it literally caused panic and fear throughout the whole of America. It was all they talked about for about three or four days in the news. Um, fear is, is quite an interesting thing, isn't it? Sometimes we use the phrase, um, false evidence appearing real. And I think probably we'd all say that that was an example of exactly that. that they were getting themselves right at it, weren't they? But interestingly, that same day, as our American friends were um, thinking that UFOs had landed, there was a plane that did land in London that day. And as he got off the plane, Neville Chamberlain stood up and he gave a very famous speech. He said, peace in our time. And actually, I think probably... The people around him who were fearful at that time probably were quite valid in their fear. Sometimes fear is a valid emotion. And I think we're going to talk about fear a bit today. I feel in a way we're in quite fearful times. We just came out of a pandemic. There were many of us fearful for our loved ones and their health. And then as soon as that's over, um, we get war in Europe. And I think that's fearful. I think I'm, I'm not the only one who's quite scared watching the news sometimes. On top of that, we've got um, energy crisis. I wrote this three weeks ago, but in the last three weeks we've probably got a little bit of instability in our own country as well. Things change, don't they, and, and fearful. The Bible has quite a lot to say about fear. What it mainly says is do not fear. In fact, it says lots and lots. It said when Abraham uh, was making a covenant, God said to him, do not fear. When his son Isaac faced um, problems in Bathsheba with the Philistines, God said, do not fear. When his son Jacob was entering Egypt, God said, do not fear. When Moses was getting him out of Egypt, God said, do not fear. When Jeremiah was petrified because he was too young. God said, do not fear. When uh, Daniel was having a vision and was scared because he was old, God said, do not fear. There's loads of examples, loads and loads of examples in the Bible where God tells us, do not fear. And I'm going to go today to the most famous of all of those, the one that we've all seen, the one that's been on wars everywhere. If you can please turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'm just going to quickly recap where we are in the narrative. Actually, brilliantly, the kids did my job for me last week. They were amazing, weren't they? Kids talked about um, Old Testament history. But we did just remind ourselves, um, Abraham uh, was given a promise from God that he's going to have a place to live. And then through a series of events, he, he and his, his family end up moving to Egypt with his great-grandson, Joseph. Remember Joseph, Technicolor Dreamcut Joseph. They move into e Egypt. They stay there 400 years. They moved in as welcome guests. By the end of the 400 years, they're, they're slaves. Um, and then God raises up Moses. Moses comes in. We remember, don't we? Moses says to the Pharaoh, let my people go. Um, he doesn't, so God sends 10 plagues. Eventually, the people get out of Egypt, and they spend the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And that's where we are. We're in the sixth book of the Bible. We're just right at the very end of those 40 years, and we get to there. So our, our verse today, then, is this. Joshua 1, verse 9. And it's this, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. 
I think God says two things to uh, Joshua. The first one's on the board there, on the screen. Be bold and courageous. It's interesting. God doesn't say, oh, there's nothing to worry about, mate. Because there is. There's stuff going on. And Joshua has lots to be fearful of. Let's have a little look. If you go to the beginning of that paragraph, Joshua 1, verses 1 and 2, says this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. Well, three things. I can see three things, I reckon, that Joshua has to be fearful. They're going to come on the screen. The first one is this, big boots to fill. Moses was a leader. Moses was the leader of all leaders. Think about it. Moses, had, um, he tackled Pharaoh. He'd put his stick on the Jordan. He'd, he'd split the Jordan. They'd all crossed in the Jordan. He, um, he'd gone up to Mount Sinai. He'd been given the Ten Commandments. Moses had seen the very face of God. He was, by any measurement, a great leader. And there's Joshua. He's next. What a horrible situation to be in. What a fearful situation to be in. I was thinking about this earlier this year, didn't we, when Her Majesty, Her Majesty died. Um, and there was lots of sadness. But how many of us said about King Charles, what big shoes he has to fill? And I think that must have been the first thing that Joshua was really scared of, that big role that he had to take on. The second thing was he's going to become Israel's leader. Not only did he have a big role, he had a massive job. This is a nation. He was in charge of a whole nation. And any of us who've ever been given any responsibility knows that that can be a really scary thing to do. So, big shoes, Israel's nation. The last one is this one. He had a giant task to do, like literally a giant task. First thing he had to do is he had to get his people, and it says here, he has to cross the River Jordan. Now, I always imagined that they pulled up their trousers and they tippy-toed over this little stream. Not like that at all. Turn over the page, Joshua 3, 15, tells us that it's harvest season and that the river's flooded. We are talking a massive torrential stream. It was an incredibly dangerous task just to even get his men over that river. It, really, really dangerous to do. Big, big river. And that's not even the hard bit. When he gets to the other side, he's got the Canaanites waiting for him. But we know, we talked earlier, that they were in the um, desert for 40 years. The reason the Israelites were in the desert 40 years is because 38 years previously, God had told them to go into the Promised Land and they'd sent 12 spies. And they'd have a look round, and two of those spies came back. Our mate Joshua and, he, and Caleb came back and said that they thought he could do it. They could do it. They thought they could do it. But the other ten came back and said there's no way they could defeat the Canaanites because they're giants. They said they, Numbers 13 says that the Canaanites were so big that they made the Israelites feel like grasshoppers. So there we are. Joshua had lots to fear. That's why God says to him, be bold and courageous. He knew that this was a fearful situation. And we're often in fearful situations too, aren't we? We're told to be bold and courageous. But how do we do that? How do we be bold and courageous? We can't just magic up uh, courage. I think this passage gives us three ways we can do that. We're not going to cover the first two properly, but I'll just mention them so that you know they're there and you can look at it maybe later. First one, in verse 6, God says to Joshua, be bold and courageous. Look back at what I promised your ancestors. The first way we can find courage moving forward is looking back looking back at what God has promised us, looking back at how God has been faithful in our lives. So looking back gives us courage moving forward. The second one, in verses 7 and 8, is looking to God's word. Yeah, uh, Josh, God says to Joshua, be bold and courageous, look at my, your, my law, meditate on it, live it. If we're looking at God's word, if we're studying it and understanding it, we get to know God better, that gives us courage. 
If we're meditating on it and we're living it, we're going to make a lot less stupid choices. That gives us courage. So that those two are really important. But I think the third one that I really want to focus on today is this one here. Let me read it again. It says, Have I not commanded you to be bold and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Uh, the message puts it this way. It says, Do not be timid. Don't get discouraged. God, your God, is with you every step you take. Now, one thing you might know about me is I have an extreme fear of heights. Acrophobia, I think, is if posh tame. But I honestly, I don't know if it's come short, but I don't even like going upstairs. Honestly, I don't like going upstairs. These people in the back, hello in the back, I'd be petrified sitting where you are. Honestly, I hate it. A few years ago, we, um, we went to the Isle of Wight on, on a weekend away. I took two girls, I took a friend each, I went over for the weekend. It was really fun, we had a really good time until we were coming back. And we, um, we get on the ferry, we park on the top deck, we, uh, get, there, we get back to Portsmouth, uh, the car, first car drives off happily, and then it's my turn. And I get to the edge where you have to go down the ramp, and I can't do it. I just can't do it. So I, I put in reverse and go back. I can't go back. The cars are already lined up for me. I can't go back. I can't go forward. So I stopped. Um, many of the 90 drivers behind me, I think they were BMW drivers, they tried to help me out by beeping. <laughs> Funnily enough, didn't work. And I, and I, just, I was paralysed by fear. And at this point here, uh, a man walked over, he had a high-vis jacket on, he walked over and I pulled down the window and I said to him, I, I can't move, I can't, I can't move. And he, he said, hi, my name's Andy. And I apparently said, ooh, Andy, that's my husband's name. <laughs> my kids still remind me of it every time I do it. So anyway, so Andy explained to me that I had to go down the ramp. There wasn't, I had no choice in that, I had to go down the ramp. But here's the kicker, he said to me, what I'll do, Emily, is I'll walk, I'll walk next to you, I'm going to go every step of the way, you drive down, I'll walk next to you and we'll do it together. And I thought, all right then, happy days. So Andy and I, we drove down this ramp slowly, incredibly slowly. And we, we, he, he walked, I drove, we talked, we talked about the weather, we talked about Pompey had won that week, we talked about football, we just talked. And eventually, before I knew it, I was on the ground and I was on the M27 on my way home. All because my hero in a high-vis jacket walked with me every step of the way. And God promises Joshua the same. He promises him that he's going to be with him every step of the way. Even if he's in a fearful situation, he's going to be with him. And that promises for us too. But when we see a promise in the Bible, it's really important we look at the context, right? And it's really important we, we don't take on promises that aren't for us for us. But this one, I believe, very much is for us. And I just want to throw a couple of verses out there just, to, just for us all to know that God is with us too. Um, in Isaiah 41.10, God talks through that prophet to the whole nation. He says this, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. In the Old Testament, we see God saying that to his whole people. And then we flip forward to the New Testament, and pretty much the very last thing Jesus says to his disciples, once he's encouraged them to uh, go off and make disciples of all nations, he says this to them in Matthew 28, verse 20, the Great Commission. He says this, Surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. That's Jesus promising his followers that he's going to be with us the whole time. And then Hebrews, right at the very end of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews uh, quotes God as saying this, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Throughout scripture, from beginning to end, God promises that he's going to be with us. And I think that's just really, really important. I, I don't know what you guys have got to fear or face. I know some of it's really real. I know some of us watch the news and we see that we see the war and it's scary. 
we see the cost of living. Many of us, you know, some people are scared to put their heating on. They, they, they don't know how they're going to pay for their food. This, they don't know how they're going to buy their kids Christmas presents this Christmas. People are fearful financially. And it might be a lot more personal than that for you. It might be that, um, that you've had a medical diagnosis you're waiting for, or one even more so that you've had. And there's fear. And, and God says he's with us. He's with us every step. Okay, so I want to leave us today with this question. Challenge for all of us. What would you do tomorrow if you were absolutely certain that God was with you? If you're absolutely certain that whatever you were doing tomorrow, you didn't need to fear because God was right next to you. How would you go out of your comfort zone? Who would you talk to? What ministry would you start? What career change would you make? I have no idea what God sent you. But if you were, if you were not scared, if you were not fearful, what would you do? Because he does. That's exactly what God promises. He promises you he's going to be with us. If we really believe that, if I, if I, I want to take this to myself, if I really believe that God is with me every step of the way, what am I going to do differently the next year? What am I going to do differently this week? What am I going to do differently today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you're a God who promises to be with us, Lord, that you, you call us to be bold and courageous, um, but you promise that you'll be there at all times. Lord, I just pray... For each of you here today, Lord, I don't know how you're challenging us to be brave, Lord. Maybe it is in, in, in how we serve you, Lord, um, or if it's how we speak about you, or if it's how we face what's coming up, Lord. Just give each and every one of us courage, Lord. I'm reminded, too, of the Footprints poem where, Lord, sometimes there are seasons that you don't just walk next to us, but you carry us. And I just pray, Lord, for those people who are listening today, Lord, who are just really going through a tough time, Lord, of, of just needing to be carried by you, Lord, that you'll give them um, strength and courage, Lord, as they lean into your arms. But I just pray for each and every one of us, Lord. You, 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 um, you tell us that you've given us a, uh, not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind, Lord. And I just pray that each of us will just really feel that. Amen. Thanks, Emily. great challenge at the end we'll pray about it at the end as well just that so 10 talks the beauty of 10 talks is that um uh you don't know, well you don't know what you're going to get <laughs> in the sense that this is now a completely different talk isn't it rob so i want to pray for you and then i'll let you carry on okay father Lord, i thank you for my brother in christ rob i thank you for his heart for you and your heart for him Lord, i thank you that he serves you he loves you and lord i pray right now that the words that he's prepared will be your words lord that uh, anything that's of him will just fall away. And uh, you will challenge us, Lord, through Rob's words. Fill him now, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Hello. Gospel message sometimes gets presented in fairly short sayings. And that's often a good thing. It even happens in, in the Bible quite a bit. The earliest written gospel summary is in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, which focuses on forgiveness of sins and Jesus' death and resurrection. And then uh, the most well-known version in the Gospel of John focuses on love and believing and eternal life. The Gospel message is being presented with different emphases in these passages, but each is within the overall picture of God's grace. And there is a need to keep the right balance of these elements, elements that complement each other and build a more complete picture of what the gospel really is. 
However, the influence of the world has a tendency to turn down the volume on some aspects of the gospel because perhaps they don't sit comfortably with the culture. Chris recently spoke about the uncomfortable truth, if you remember that, of the, the seriousness of sin, because that part can get its volume turned down. Today, I'm highlighting another area, which although it's included in some worship quite a bit, we still need to be careful not to ignore. If you can, please could you turn to chapter one of the Gospel of Mark, which I'll be looking at in just a moment. Mark, the evangelist, wrote the earliest of the four gospel accounts, and he quickly opens the gospel by referring to the backstory of the gospel accounts, the Old Testament, and the Old Testament build-up. He remembers that the Lord himself would be coming to his people, according to the voice crying in the wilderness. And then after this backstory link, Mark soon moves to a behind-the-scenes story, of gospel events. Straight after Jesus' baptism, when the heavens are seen torn open, Jesus begins his mission. And I think that the starting point sometimes helps understanding the purpose of the mission. It begins like this at chapter 1 of Mark in verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This passage is much shorter than the versions in the Gospels according to Matthew and Luke. And that does bring a bit of a risk. There's a risk of filling in the gaps with the other gospel accounts and skipping past Mark's version. The thing to ask, though, is, would that be Mark's intention, especially if those other accounts hadn't been written yet? Some things I'd like you to notice. First of all, there are three references in this passage to supernatural beings, the spirit, Satan, and angels. And this sets the passage apart from most other scenes in the narrative. Next, the next point is that the tempting is a kind of confrontation, especially if you look at that in view of the whole Bible account. Mark's account does not directly describe how his confrontation works out between Jesus and Satan. And by not giving an outcome while presenting the two figures of Jesus and Satan, it provides, according to some commentators, it provides a framework for understanding the overall story that Mark is telling. It sets up two sides for the whole gospel account, albeit one side is mostly behind the scenes. It also sets up a tension in the story as we wait to hear how the conflict between Jesus and Satan gets resolved. The behind-the-scenes story affects the whole of Mark's Gospel. Satan is left mostly out of sight, but we still know he's there, behind the opposition to what's going on. The next point is that 40 days in the wilderness and being tempted, you might expect Jesus 
to be, to be weakened by that experience in some way, but we get the opposite happening. Reading on at verse 14, this is what really happens. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel or the good news. After this time in the wilderness, Jesus had had the power to launch the gospel proclamation, the most powerful proclamation in human history. But Mark doesn't describe much of a speech here. The details of the gospel preached are left mostly untold at this stage, and much waits to be revealed throughout the gospel story. Later on, forgiveness of sins and the cross will definitely be brought into sharp focus. But there's no mention yet. Instead, one aspect of the earliest message may be better understood from looking together at what is said and what's done. First, Jesus does speak about the kingdom of God here, and that's a theme which continues throughout Mark's narrative. God coming to reign. Second, Jesus did things to explain what this meant. So what is Jesus doing as he starts his mission in chapter 1? More often than healing or teaching is mentioned, Jesus launches a preaching campaign in which confrontations with spiritual evil are mentioned four times just in that chapter including his first miracle of his mission. He signals that he has come to reassert God's authority over all things, God's kingdom, and is emphasizing subjecting Satan and demons to that authority. And now for, for some of us, this might be a blind spot. If we have a tendency to supernatural minimalism where it might be comfortable to just stick with God and the Holy Spirit and heaven, whilst for some of us, not all of us, talk about Satan and demons provokes reactions like, doesn't that sound a bit silly or primitive, or don't we know better about that kind of thing now? But the gospel contains countercultural ideas, and Mark's gospel really highlights this area of spiritual conflict at the beginning when he introduces Jesus to his hearers and his readers. He wants us to be aware of an underlying spiritual reality, which includes personal spiritual evil that Jesus must defeat. For some of us, this may seem remote from how we experience the world, and that's why I want to jump to part of chapter 8 of the same gospel, which presents things in a manner which I think is more relatable. In front of the behind-the-scenes story, Jesus encounters increasing resistance to his way to the cross from various authorities, but even amongst his closest followers. In that chapter, Peter seems to hit a bit of a high point when he's asked the question, who do you say that I am? And he responds, you're the Christ. It seems to be going really well for him at that point, but it doesn't last. When Jesus explains part of the gospel to Peter, Peter has a response where he fails to trust Jesus. 
he tries to take Jesus off course. If you're able to look at chapter 8, verses 31 to 33, it says, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I want to highlight that Jesus calls out the lie behind Peter's resistance and the causes of it. He identifies both Peter's human failing and the influence of Satan behind it. My understanding is that Satan had influenced Peter, but not with a voice that Peter could hear, but instead with a deceitful idea. The idea that Peter thought he knew better it's this sort of attack of deceitful ideas which is common ground with our experience. I think they happen all the time. And I'll highlight two broad categories of ideas here. First one, perhaps more familiar, temptation ideas where sin or its consequences are hidden or disguised. And so sin, sin is encouraged. And then the second category, accusation type ideas are more about you being discouraged by hiding or denying God's love and grace towards you. If you've ever experienced unhealthy guilt, then it might well be this sort of thing. While people are very capable of self-deception, Scripture identifies something more behind the scenes of the deceitful ideas that come into our minds. John's Gospel calls that source the father of lies, this is the serpent who first deceived Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and with whom there's been a struggle ever since. So this, this behind-the-scenes story is linked to the backstory of the Old Testament. And in that backstory, God made a promise. He promised one who would crush the serpent's head. Back to Peter. Why did he go wrong and rebuke Jesus? First, it looks like he had the wrong kind of Christ in mind. A leader that Peter thought was here to defeat, to, to defeat Caesar and the Romans, the occupying power. And second, Peter was probably expecting Christ to only turn up once and do everything in one go. Third, and most importantly, Peter didn't trust Jesus' message and thought he knew better. But Jesus had come in accordance with his father's much greater plan. He came to defeat evil, not just a temporary human empire. Jesus came to defeat an evil that would have enslaved and oppressed Peter and everyone else, even if the Romans were gone. Although Satan and other evil powers did their worst to him, thinking they could destroy Jesus on the cross, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, overcame Satan. Now, if you're wondering if this theme only comes up in Mark's Gospel, that's really not the case. I did a little survey, and I couldn't find any New Testament writer that didn't introduce this theme into their writing somewhere. 
I'll mention just a couple so we can get a clearer understanding. The letter to the Hebrews says, so that through death, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And in Paul's letter to the Colossian church, it says, he, God, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. These verses stress Jesus' victory and rescue. So having said all of this, this is the overview I think the Bible is presenting. Humanity had rebelled against God. This rebellion gave Satan the power to enslave and bring death. Jesus has come as the true king to defeat evil and to rescue those who are willing to follow him. And all of this prompts three questions for us to consider. Are we willing to accept the need for a rescuer? Are we willing to keep trusting in his victory and his rescue to believe this part of the gospel? And will we continue to praise and thank God for all that he has done for us? Prayer. On the night Jesus was arrested, he was in the garden and he was severely tested. He, he resisted the greatest of spiritual attacks as the full cost of our rescue was revealed to him. He prayed to his father and submitted that his father's will be done. And he also urged his disciples to pray then too, to pray not to enter into temptation, matching the term that we know from the prayer Jesus taught to his disciples, the Lord's Prayer. So in recognition of this, I invite you if you, are, if you want to, in closing with a prayer in this way to our Father, in whatever version or language you prefer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory.